Welcome to CBuzz, Columbus's first business-focused podcast presented by the Columbus Chamber. CBuzz is sponsored by AWH, builders of exceptional digital products for both the web and mobile devices that drive businesses for select growth companies, and also Fifth Third Bank, which provides personalized solutions for your business goals. Hello, I am Dan Swartout, your host for CBuzz. Thank you for joining us. CBuzz is presented by the Columbus Chamber in collaboration with CD1025 and the Columbus Dispatch. This is the show where we bring you the best stories from Columbus business owners. And today we are lucky enough to be talking with Steve Buddendeck, the co-founder of Verde Bikes and the general manager slash brand manager for Greenhouse BMX. Steve, thanks so much for joining us here today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're thrilled to have you here. I'm really excited for our conversation because I, although I was never that great, I loved riding my BMX bicycles as a kid and we'd make paths in neighbor's yards and get in trouble doing that. So I'm really looking forward to our talk. I look forward to more of that. It helps our our industry. (laughs) Well, Steve, tell us a little bit about, before we get in depth in our conversation, tell us a little bit about Verde Bikes and Greenhouse BMX, what your business is all about. Verde Bikes is a BMX bike company. And when I describe what it is to people, they always think we're a bike shop. We're a brand. Um, We're not as big as Nike, but Nike is probably a good example of what we do. Right. We design product. We have it manufactured overseas. We import it and then we sell it to retailers. Uh-huh. So we bring bikes in to Ohio, and then we sell them to over 300 retailers across the United States. Wow. So you call here to Columbus, you place your order, and we ship it to the bike shop. The bike shop puts it on display. Kid walks into the bike shop, says, hey, I want that Verde bike. They leave happy. They so, leave very happy. Yeah. Uh, you are, that's an interesting segment to get into. I want to build and and distribute and manufacture and design BMX bikes. Obviously, I'm assuming you didn't just walk into this at some stage. You must have some sort of history, love, or affinity for BMX and BMX racing. Yeah. BMX was my, like, number one hobby as a kid. I'm probably, since maybe 10 or 11 years old, is what I spent all my time doing. Yeah. It's kind of the freedom and exploration to leave your driveway on your BMX bike and go build jumps in the woods or go, you know, I guess back in the eighties, parents let you leave and go as far as you want, as long as you're back by dinner. And that's what I did. I I rode, I rode BMX bikes. So it was a little different time. So this is my childhood hobby. Yeah. And I remember going to a bike shop with my parents and wanting a really nice bike. And the salesman said, hey, I think your son knows a lot about this. I don't think he's going to want a cheaper one. And my dad said, he's going to be into something else next week. Uh And here I am. Still into BMX. <laughs> so I proved my dad wrong. That's why I started the company, just to prove my dad wrong. So, but, uh, so yeah, it was a childhood hobby and then eventually went to college and stayed into bikes and then got a job as a magazine editor uh, out of college. So I just learned a lot about the bike industry through the advertisers, through the events, and just really connected to the scene. You are from uh, central New York, Rochester area Rochester, originally, yeah. Yeah. and you went to school in New York State? Yeah, I went to Fredonia State, which is a small SUNY school, which uh-huh. is State University of New York, uh, just outside of Buffalo. I studied communication and marketing. And did you go to school with the thought of, I'm doing communications, I'm doing marketing, I'd like to get in something BMX related based on the skills I'm learning? 
No, I, I thought I'd work at an ad agency and I didn't really know what I would do at an ad agency, but it just seemed like advertising is what I wanted to do. Cause I liked brands. I liked photography. I liked media. I mean, media was a lot different back then, but that's kind of the path I thought I was going down. You kind of look like Don Draper. So I can see that. <laughs> I can yeah. see that. So you get a job right out of school mm-hmm. working in the BMX field. Tell us a little bit about that. I, I lucked out because I worked for a photographer. The publisher of the magazine, which was Rod BMX Magazine and Snap BMX, uh, was a great photographer, and he had worked at a BMX bike magazine and then decided to do his own thing. And he taught me to take photos. And back then, magazines were more about photos than writing, but I could write well because I went to school for it. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot about shooting photos, and that's how I got the opportunities with the X Games, how I got opportunities with just kind of creative avenues in BMX is that back then the magazine was, you know, it was really what the sport was all about. That's how you learned about everything. Absolutely. Because it was pre-internet. Uh, so being a photographer really took me places and then I could write, write well too. So I ended up getting to see the world on another, you know, someone else's dime <laughs> and learn a lot about uh, the international markets and where the opportunities were for our, what would eventually be my BMX bike brand. Now you mentioned briefly the X Games, which yeah. is such a cultural phenomenon yeah. now, but you were involved right at the ground floor, the very beginning. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about how that happened and what you did with the X Games? In 1995, I ran the Extreme Games. I ran the bike events. Uh-huh. And it was so different then. And I remember when ESPN, uh, they approached the National Bicycle League, which was based here in Columbus at the time. And they said, oh, we know a guy that could do it. So I was running these BMX dirt jumping contests to promote uh, a little grassroots brand that I owned at the time. And I remember going to ESPN, going to Bristol, Connecticut, and being in these meetings and just thinking, wow, this is so, this is surreal. This idea is so how, strange. How old are you as you're taking all these meetings at, at, at Bristol at ESPN? Uh, 22, 23. So, so you're living basically you know, mid-90s, whatever, you're living basically every guy's dream right now. Coming from a BMX culture, what's it like going from something that is extreme and is thought of kind of cutting edge and, you know, that was a real buzzword, obviously, in the 90s, extreme, going from that kind of culture to a corporate culture, uh, being in a boardroom, what was that like for you? Uh, It was interesting just because I... I felt like I had to sit up straight and uh, be more professional <laughs> because, you know, I, I spent all my time on couches and on just right, road trips right. and just shooting photos. And, you know, it was done. We were always on a shoestring budget no matter where I worked because the industry was very small. And it wasn't until the Extreme Games then turned into the X Games that it really legitimized our sport. And the amount of money that I would sell a photo for before the X Games like was peanuts, but all of a sudden it legitimized it. it. It made it so a lot of parents could encourage their kids to ride BMX bikes right. because it wasn't like they were going to get a scholarship, but it was on TV and not only that it was on ESPN. So that's where dad was watching all the sports. Absolutely. So it really, it helped the bike industry a lot. Um, 
but it, it's it's it changed it. It definitely some people loved it, some people hated it, but it definitely brought a lot of exposure to our sport. So you are in kind of the marketing. You're working with the X Games. You're seeing the growth of the BMX industry, something you've always had a passion for. Eventually, somewhere along the lines, as you're working in these various fields related to BMX, you decide that you want to own a BMX company that designs bikes. How do you make that transition from being on the marketing side of it to being on the design and retail side of it? Well, I have a business partner named Corey Muth, and yes. he was a, an exceptional BMX racer. And so when I was the magazine editor out of North Carolina, he was the top rider in the whole state of BMX racing wow. in North Carolina. So if I was driving to Memphis, Tennessee for a race, he was going to drive there. So we eventually just started kind of carpooling. I was offering him rides to, to Michigan or Orlando or Memphis or wherever. So we spent a lot of time traveling and he was kind of my go-to to shoot photos of because if I needed a really great BMX rider to shoot with, he was local. So we started there and I don't think at that time I could even see any of his talents beyond BMX. Uh -huh. He was just a BMX racer. And he ended up working for a friend of mine and the friend Hal Brindley said, you know, he's really smart. He's got, you know, he's putting all these systems in place for our order processing. He's, he's building a website. He's doing all this stuff. Uh -huh. And I was like, really? He's pretty quiet. I, I can't imagine him doing any of this stuff, but he's just a guy that likes to learn. And he was an exceptional bike rider. So eventually I moved from North Carolina up to Dayton, Ohio to work for a, a competitor now called DK Bikes. Okay. And Corey was sponsored by DK Bikes. So, so this relationship, yeah, the relationship it, it continues. Yeah, fortuitously. So, so Corey graduates from NC State and doesn't really know what he's going to do. And I say, why don't you move up to Dayton? You can, you know, you can work at DK with me. And then by the time that he moved up there, I actually said, you know, what? I'm going to go out and do my own thing. So Corey and I started a design business. So it was a lot of photo, a lot of print. And we learned a lot through, again, had relationships with companies, were helping build their brands. And it was a good, it was a fun period because everything was so photo driven there. Right. And there were so few people that could do it well until digital came along. Then everyone could do it well. Sure. Or everyone knew somebody that could do it. Maybe not well, but it really changed everything. Maybe well enough. Yeah. So we, you know, I think especially having clients and we had a lot of bike clients. We did work for DK bikes, uh -huh. we did work for Schwinn, we did work for Airwalk, we did work for DC shoes. We did all this action sports stuff. And there's a honeymoon where you get hired and you do your best work. You say, this is what we can do for your brand. And they love it. Yeah. And then they get comfortable and they say, eh, why don't you make the logo bigger? Actually, let's try red. Uh, I don't like that photo. Let's do this. So they get comfortable with you and you feel like you're not doing your best work. Uh-huh. So the honeymoon starts sweet and then they get comfortable. You're getting paid to do it. But sometimes when you do eight versions of it and you end up back at the first one, you're like, I know we're billing for these hours, but there's so, only so many hours in the day. So we started branching out. We did some work for Levi's for three years. And that was amazing because they had a BMX program. They knew that we knew more about BMX than they did. So we put together this program. We did all these web videos. We built a website. We were shooting photos, shooting video, traveling, and that was really fun. But eventually you know, they got out of BMX and then we're, we're sort of 
faced with, we can either go back to doing a bunch of work for bike companies, right? but we've had a taste of something better. Yeah. And the world had gotten so much smaller because of the internet, so you could find how to make stuff overseas, and you started to learn which factories were making stuff for different bike companies. Mm -hmm. And I, so I took a job as the general manager at Alien Workshop Skateboards, and they had a trading agent that made skateboard tools and bearings and some parts in Taiwan, and he was a, a bike guy. So I became friends with him, he had a factory, so we started, started the pieces kind of fit together, like we could do this, we could make bikes. And you know, four years earlier we would have thought, that's crazy, there's no way we could figure out how to, how to do this. But Corey picked up and moved to Taiwan and lived there for a year. He lived there for a year. Yeah, so that was a huge benefit to us because if you look at Haro, or you look at Mongoose, or you look at all these big brands, they send someone to Taiwan, they're jet lagged, they recover, they go to some meetings, they fig figure some stuff out, and then they go home. And also in a lot of those bike factories, they want to drink and they want to get you wrecked so you're in bad shape for your next <laughs> meeting because you're going to the competitor. So you have this culture where these guys go, these product managers go to Taiwan, uh -huh. And they're just, it's like, they're trying to survive because they, by the end of the trip, they're exhausted. When they got there, they're already exhausted from the travel. So a lot of our competitors would have people working in Taiwan for two weeks total of the whole year. They're not in top form during those two weeks. So Corey is there. They're being wined and yeah, dined. Yeah. So Corey's there long enough that they're going to stop taking him out for drinks. Right, right. And he's visiting the factory unexpected. He's finding out about another factory no one knows about yet. So he... He really did a great job giving us a head start over the competition. The flip side is it's not a great place to live. He lived in Taichung, which is a great place for bicycle manufacturing. Every single part of the bike is available there. Tons of different factories. That's where all the big brands go. But it's probably not someplace you want to live um, so, as, an, as a spoiled American. <laughs> so while Corey is in Taiwan, you're still in Dayton. And as he's exploring yeah. all of this to create what would eventually become Verde Bikes, do you still have a full-time gig? Yeah, I had a full-time gig. We started the brand in 07, uh -huh. and I didn't start working for myself until late 2009. So you spent a lot of time laying the groundwork yeah. for this. I mean, I learned so much working at Alien Workshop about how to build a brand just inventory-based business. We're dealing with a pretty similar customer. We're selling to a bike shop, they're selling to a skate shop. Tons of crossover, had incredible mentors. My boss at Alien Workshop, Chris Carter, one of the founders was, I love learning from him. And I felt like I was learning something every day that I was really interested in helping his business grow and succeed. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, wow, this is gonna be really valuable for when I do it on my own. And he was encouraging me to do it on, on my own eventually because that's what he did and he would have loved to have someone help him along like he was me. So while you're there, mm -hmm. um, you're building what will eventually become Verde Bikes, you're right. working full time for them, and you have the support of your employers at the time knowing that this is your eventual goal and destination is to go out on your own. Right, that, the wow. thing that really changed it was I accepted the job at Alien Workshop with the ability to utilize some of the resources, and we were going to sublease space in the warehouse to start this bike company. It's gonna be good for them because they would have another source of revenue. I would be there on, you know, in the building if there were some issues. But Burton Snowboards bought Alien Workshop 
about a year after I started working there. Uh-huh. So all the opportunity to do it on the cheap out of their building was out the window. Gone. Yeah. So I hired a guy named Lou Caparelli, who he's at Rogue Fitness now, but he moved here from Chicago to start the business with us. And we're really lucky because he was going to move to Dayton because that's where Alien Workshop was, but right. he was kind of on the fence. And eventually I said, well, you know, we're going to have to do this on their own. We're going to have to get our own building. We're going to have to do all these things differently than the plan. He said, good, because I don't want to live in Dayton. <laughs> <laughs> I want to live in Columbus. And I said, okay, well, you're the only guy that I want to work with to do this. Let's start the company in Columbus. So I thanks, Lou, for... Uh, so that was basically... That was the because oh, I was going to ask next why Columbus, and it was basically because the guy you wanted said, "Let's go to Columbus." Yeah, he he would not leave when he had he if he had to he would move back to Dayton because he did live there before, but he said, "No, I don't. I want to live in Columbus," and it's worked out amazing because Columbus is an incredible. City. Oh yeah, but also from logistics side, we had no idea how good it was, and bikes are heavy. And they come in big boxes and they're difficult to ship. They're expensive to ship. So we really lucked out. And there's a ton of bicycle distribution in and around Columbus just by chance. Not companies that are based here, but they just know this is a great place to ship bicycles. So, so I'm, I, you know, one of the things I find so interesting about doing these shows is all of the fortuitous events, the things of chance that come together. You and Corey just happen to go end up working at the same place. Mm-hmm. This guy, Lou, says, I want to be in Columbus. And yeah. it just so happens that Columbus is great mm-hmm. for uh, – bicycle distribution. I, I just love those kind of things of chance that bring you to exactly where you are. What was your initial thought when he said Columbus? I mean, what was your familiarity with, with about Columbus at the time? And, and what were you initially thinking about Columbus, Ohio? I mean, being from Dayton, we would leave a lot. Or, you know, I moved to Dayton. We would leave all the time. We'd go to Cincinnati or Columbus to do stuff. Yeah. So I had a really great opinion of Columbus. Um, it's just, it's a really optimistic, educated and young, vibrant city. And just being here, there's, there's a bigger pool of talent. And that's one thing we struggle with when Corey and I had our design business in Dayton, we moved a guy from Raleigh up to Dayton and we moved Uh another guy from Grand Rapids down to Dayton and they didn't last. They, they wanted more because they were from places that generally had a little bit more. And like Dayton's a nice city, but, sure. but it was really hard to recruit somebody. And, and I think at Alien Workshop, the brand was so strong. People wanted to work there so bad, mm-hmm. but we really didn't pull much talent from outside of the Dayton area. There were just, you grew up there, you wanted to work there so bad. And eventually some of you, some of them did. What were some of the initial, um, issues that you had dealing with moving bicycles from halfway across the world to you to where they needed to be? Well, the the product, the process starts after we've designed and improved samples of, of a bike. We ship them from Taichung to Columbus and we do it with through ocean freight. So there's a container, gets on the boat, goes to Long Beach, California, gets on the train, makes it to Illinois, gets on a truck, and it gets here. That's really the easy part because uh-huh. you just pick a carrier and you learn how to do it, and it, it just happens. But once it gets here, you know, if we have a bike shop that is in Seattle that wants to buy one bike, and it's a bike that's going to sell for 300 bucks, it might cost them 60 bucks to ship it from right. Columbus to Seattle. So there's just 
America's so big, and that's something that we have international customers in 22 countries around the world. And I'll talk to our distributor in the UK, and they'll say, I can ship a bike anywhere in, in, around the UK for 10 bucks. And then I, I tell them, well, I got to pay 60 bucks to ship one to Seattle. And that's, that's a challenge. But somehow Columbus has attracted all these bike companies. So like Specialized Bikes, which is based in Morgan Hill, California, mm -hmm. they have a warehouse in Salt Lake City and they have a warehouse in Groveport. And then, really? And then Raleigh Bikes has a warehouse in Pataskala and Haro Bikes has a warehouse in Reynoldsburg. And there's Seattle Bike Supply had a warehouse in Reynoldsburg and Kenda Tires makes bike tires and they're here. So by chance, there's all this bike <laughs> business here. And I remember reading years ago, Specialized was gonna shut down their warehouse. They were in uh, Grove City at the time. Mm -hmm. Their plan was to shut that down, open Memphis, open Harrisburg. So they're gonna go from two to three. They're still gonna keep Salt Lake City open. And they did, had an independent study come. They hired somebody to do a study. And they said, no way, do not close down Ohio. You're not gonna reach that many customers based on where the population is. Memphis isn't gonna do any good. Mm -hmm. And Harrisburg's really not that far from Columbus. So just go big here. So they moved from, from Grove City to Groveport. And it's, I, from my view, I've, I've been in there once. I tried really hard to go in there. <laughs> and I, I knew a guy and I said, I wanna come check it out. And they're like, yeah, you know, you're a competitor, you can't. So, tried and tried and tried and eventually I saw he needed a bike box to ship his bike somewhere that we had right and I said definitely you can borrow it but I get to pick it up at Specialized <laughs> so I got in and he doesn't work anymore so I can give him credit but <laughs> you know you start 2007 it's you uh, Corey eventually comes back from Taiwan. It's right. Lou, the three mm -hmm. of you. How big is your, how many employees do you guys have now? We're down to six. We're as big as 12. Uh -huh. And we've learned the hard way, really, because we had no idea how big the market was. And our brand got big really fast. Right. Everything aligned. So we were doubling unit sales. But it's interesting, the, when we started in 2007, we just got the cheapest, smallest warehouse that had a loading dock. That was it. We needed a loading dock. We wanted to spend as little as possible. We get our bikes and they barely fit in the warehouse. And when you build bikes, you need 135 days. So you place a purchase order. Uh -huh. that it takes 100 days for those bikes to be built. Then they get on the water and you know the train and the truck, and it takes 35 days. So we placed our PO for the first bikes. They show up. We start selling. We had already placed another PO. They're on the way. They're not going to fit in the warehouse. We're not selling enough bikes. So we had to go to Joel Yakovac, who's our uh, real estate broker. We said, we need a bigger building. Uh -huh. Oh, really? Things are going great? No, we, we have no room. We bought too many bikes. <laughs> so we were able, he, he was able to get us the same landlord. We moved to a, a bigger space. Uh -huh. And then the next year it got bigger and then it got bigger. And we we're doubling unit sales every year. So it was really hard to forecast how, you know, how many bikes we could sell because we really had no idea. So our, our solution was to build bikes a lot. Right. Build them all the time and try to satisfy every corner of the world. So if it's summertime in Australia, they're going to need bikes at a different time in Canada. So we generally, a bike company will do two or three productions a year. You produce a ton of bikes, you see what everybody needs, and you sell them. We produce bikes seven times a year, uh -huh. which from a cash flow standpoint was huge because we didn't have enough money to build thousands and thousands and thousands of bikes over three, three, you know, 
drops. So we built bikes seven times. So we were calling the guy in the UK and saying, hey, we're selling a ton of bikes. Are you selling a ton of bikes? Yeah. How soon can we get more? So we're pushing the factory to build in 70, 75 days. Uh-huh. The factory is really happy because nobody, you know, people plan their line. They get bikes built. There might be some surprises, but we're just like, we need more bikes. We need more bikes. This guy needs more bikes. So it was incredible. We were able, when, when competitors ran out of bikes, we always had more coming. And that really helped us skyrocket. We started selling, uh, we sold just under 25,000 bikes a year. Wow. So we, you know, we sold 7,000 11,000 and we just worked our way up and it was nuts. And we had no idea how good we had it because we didn't know those were the good old days and we didn't know when it would stop. And we eventually said, there's no way we're going to keep doubling units. So let's just forecast flat. And the market kind of tapered off as electronics really sure, moved in. Because sure. There was a time when we were selling a ton of bikes at Christmas. If you wanted an Xbox, there was a good chance you weren't going to get one because it was a scarcity model. There were only so many available. So uh-huh. everyone that wanted an Xbox didn't get one. Today, there's a... Everyone. Kind of, um, if you want a drone or if you want an iPad or if you want a smartphone, it's endless supply. Right. So... We loved being the second place Christmas gift <laughs> because we generally, you know, we could fill demand. So it's, it's, that's one thing that's changed a lot since the early days is that we're really battling for a very fickle customer's attention and their parents' money. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I assume in your space, in your segment, BMX Bicycles, it's not just a matter of function. It's not just a matter of having a great bike for somebody to ride. It's also a matter of being cool yeah, for being. That's, that's it. That's when you boil down our business, you want to create a product that the customer won't get made fun of for having. Right. And that's true for sneakers. It's yes. true for jeans. It's true for backpacks. It's true for, it's true for everything back to school or everything, you know, the kid that we sell our bike to is 12, 13, 14, 15. If he stays into BMX, he might ride up into his 30s. I, I'm 45 and I rode my bike yesterday All at, right. at work. But it's it's not something that kids stick with if they get in with the wrong stuff. Because sure. you don't want to go to the skate park and be laughed at because you no. bought a lame bike. Right. So for us, we build the best bikes at the best factory and the aesthetic, the look, the colors, the design is so on point. And it, in our market, it can't be too, can't stray too far from what everyone else is doing. But what we do with Verde is completely Verde. We don't follow, if the trends is real splatter uh-huh. or kind of goth or whatever, we never do that. We do Verde. We are a design-focused brand and we have the best colors every year. And when a customer sees it, they're like, that. that's a Verde. You are also a brand manager. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of people talk about, brand management. But I'm not sure a lot of people know what that actually entails, what that actually means. How do you go about doing that? And how do the skills that you learned through photography, through writing, through you know communications and, and media, how does that help you manage the brand? And then after that, what's it like? Because you are really the first... You were really the first CBuzz guest that we've had that kind of markets to, you know, the 13 to 15-year-old segment, that tweener, young teen segment. And what are the unique challenges of that as well? I, 
I have to be a brand journalist. Uh-huh. I have to tell our story over and over and over and over, and I have to keep it new and exciting because that's really when you talk about a kid who's 14 years old and he's glued to his phone. Yes. He's just seeing Verde on Instagram and it's just floating by, it's just floating up the screen Uh and then it's gone. So we have to outdo ourselves. We have to create excitement about the same product over and over and over again, because once it, you know, passes up his feed, you can't expect him to scroll back down and look at it again. And that's being a magazine guy, being a magazine editor and a photographer. When I got into the bike business, it was really easy to create something exciting the customer gets it and they have 30 days to stay excited about it. They look at the pictures over and over again. They look at, they, they just go on and on and on and they just have, they spend so much time with, with the magazine. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, the shelf life is so short and our customer, their attention span is so short and there's so much stuff to buy because we're competing for the parents' money. Right. We need the kid to get excited about BMX, get excited about our brand and tell their parent they want this, and this is all they're gonna accept. Because if they go to Roll, or they go to Paradise Garage, or they go to Bicycle One Can, or just the the retailers that really get behind our product, they could get there, and the parents might say, why don't you get a mountain bike? It's a lot bigger. (laughs) (laughs) It's gonna last longer. (laughs) So we, we have to build excitement about our brand, and about the category, and we have to make kids want to accept no substitutions, because that's, we're competing for the parents' money. Right. And as a parent, I don't want to buy stuff that my kids are going to get out of. I want to buy stuff like if I'm going to buy soccer cleats for my daughter, I'm not buying the most expensive ones. Her feet are growing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, exactly. Just, I'm just in my mind, I'm always thinking like, how long is this going to last? And going back to my dad, he didn't think I was going to stay in to BMX bikes. Uh-huh. And, you know, I played all kinds of sports at the time. So in his defense, he... He thought he was right, <laughs> but <laughs> but as a brand manager, you're just you're a journalist for the brand. You're just trying to build a lot of excitement, and that's something that we see when people approach us for a job. I ask, well, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to do marketing. And then I say, what's marketing? And even people with marketing degrees, sometimes you know, recent grads, they can't even define what it is they'll do for us, but they know they want to do marketing, right? Greenhouse BMX, we haven't touched a lot on that. If you could just kind of give us a little bit of an overview on that and how that kind of has a synergy with Verde, how they work together. So we started Verde first, Uh and then we started selling some other competitors' products, generally companies, uh, a company from Spain, a company from Germany, and then we had our own brands, uh, Duo brand, which is the wearable parts brand. So we we designed tires and seats and grips and pedals under another label, which is ours. So we started to accumulate other products to sell and we couldn't answer the phone Verde. So Verde means green, greenhouse, that's it. You know, this is, this is what we're perfect. gonna- Perfect, I, yeah. I didn't even think of that, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so green, greenhouse is the home of Verde bikes, the home of green. So <laughs> greenhouse is the home of Verde bikes where bike shops call. Right. Or if a, if a consumer has a question about a product or a problem with the product, they call greenhouse too. Steve Buddendeck. Verde Bikes, Greenhouse, BMX. I always like to ask, and and you've had tremendous success, obviously, dealing all over the world, uh, sales increases. I always like to know, and I know our listeners like to know, somebody successful who's had success such as yourself, 
always looking for that one nugget of advice, the number one thing you would tell an aspiring entrepreneur to help them succeed as well? Ask for help. You can get so caught up in your fantasy or your dream or right. your, your product, your idea, and you think it's so great. And it'll take you a long time to realize that you could have done it an easier way. And that's one thing I like about the Chamber of Commerce because I, I get so, I have blinders on and I get so caught up in the day-to-day of my business that eventually there comes a point where I need answers and I can look on the internet or I can listen to CBuzz podcasts or I can go to the library. I can, there's a lot of resources, but nothing beats talking to other business people. Right. Sometimes I talk to old bosses uh-huh. or I talk to current customers or I go to the Chamber and say, hey, I need... I need to get out of my comfort zone. Steve Buddendeck, Verde Bikes, Greenhouse BMX. Thank you so much for being with us here yeah, today. This has me. been this has been a phenomenal discussion, oh, and uh, I've really enjoyed myself. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you love our show, which I know you do, let us know by dropping your ratings and reviews on iTunes. Five stars, of course, that helps people find our show. We've been reading your feedback and value your insights and ideas for future shows. Before we sign off today, I want to recognize our CBuzz partners, including Rev1 Ventures, helping entrepreneurs build products that people want, and our media partners, the Columbus Dispatch and CD1025. Thank you for your support. CBuzz is produced by the Columbus Chamber with engineering support provided by Mark Pasternak from Jump Goat Media and our recruit and our recording studio provided by the good folks at Grooveview. I'm Dan Swartout. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>